Welcome to podcast number 160 of my favorite detective stories. Today's date is May the 10th, 2022, and I'm your host, John A. Hoda. Our guest this week is Edwin Hill. Edwin is the author of the critically acclaimed Hester Thursby mystery series, the first of which, Little Comfort, was an Agatha Award finalist, a selection of the mysterious First Mystery Club, and a publisher's marketplace buzz book selection, formerly the vice president and editorial director for Bedford St. Martin's, which is now Macmillan. He now teaches at Emerson College and has written for the LA Review of Books, The Life Sentence, Publishers Weekly, and the Ellery Queen Mystery Magazine. He lives in Rosendale, Massachusetts with his partner, Michael, and their lab, Edith Ann. This is a fun interview, and I'm sure you're going to enjoy it. Welcome to my favorite detective stories. I'm your host, John A. Hoda. Come sit by my campfire as we listen to crime fiction writers talking about their flawed fictional detectives. I will alternate weekly between award-winning and best-selling authors with debut authors who have overcome all the obstacles to get their first novel out into the world. This episode is brought to you by my own FBI agent, Marsha O'Shea, six-book series, and my upcoming Gwendolyn Strong Small Town Cozy Mystery Series. To learn more, go to www.johnhoda.com, that's J-O-H-N-H-O-D-A.com, and join my email list. Liberty City Nights, my Marsha O'Shea prequel novella, is available to my subscribers there for free. Hi, Edwin. Welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. Well, I certainly appreciate you coming on today. And how's the weather up there in uh, the suburbs of Boston? Oh, it's uh, it's better today than it has been. We just got about two feet of snow a few days ago, but now it is warmer today. But it's gonna, it's all going to ice over uh, in about two days. So yeah. it's a typical winter here. And I get it. I understand. Down here on the coast, as we record this, February the 3rd, we have a rainy day in Milford, Connecticut, melting a lot of the snow. And I have to make sure to clear out whatever snow's left because, like you said, that's going to turn to ice over the weekend for me as well. And even though we're talking about snow and ice and New England weather, we're recording this in early February. But when people listen to this, the birds will be chirping and the flowers will be out and it'll be a gorgeous spring day. Yeah, I can't wait. And I guarantee it. It'll be Chamber of Commerce weather, I promise you. So (laughs) anyway... Edwin, we both were attendees at the uh, Crime Bake in uh, Dedham, Massachusetts back in the fall, and you were gracious enough to say that you'd like to come on. You've written some really nice stuff, and I particularly want to take a dive into you know your writing journey, how you got started, and listen carefully to this uh, very complex protagonist that you start out with, Hester Thursby. And I said that without stumbling over it, so... <laughs> Sometimes I stumble over it. (laughs) You know, I can imagine. You know, you didn't pick an easy one. And my editor keeps telling me, stop using characters whose last names end with an S. Because then when you have to do the plural, it's either ES or apostrophe S or SS apostrophe. And it's just better to make somebody with a name like Bryant. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So anyway, and you did that with Thursby. Anyhow, so just tell me how about how you got started and how this first novel got launched, and and I'll be sitting back and and if I have any questions, I'll just ask. 
Uh, sure. Well, you know, my writing journey to my first novel was a long one, like a lot of authors are. I started writing my first book more than well over 20 years ago now. I was living out in California. I lived in San Francisco. It was during the dot-com boom. Mm -hmm. And I decided I wanted to try writing a mystery novel. And I had a lot of fits and starts. I didn't really, I didn't quite know how to get beyond the first act, which I think a lot of first-time writers fall into that pitfall. So I would start a lot of stories and kind of peter out as I, as I got into the murky middle. But I did write enough that I was able to apply to an MFA program. So I applied to the Emerson College MFA program back here in Boston and decided to leave California and come back here. And so I entered the MFA program and I went through that. And I wrote sort of a, during that program, I wrote a, what I would call, MFA programs are, are usually more focused than on literary fiction. Mm -hmm. So I wrote some literary fiction with crime in it. And I did finish the manuscript during the MFA program. And I finished and I, there's a process that you go through when you're trying to get something published. There are a few steps that you have to go through. And one of the first steps is you have to find an agent. So I went through the process of finding an agent. I actually found one really, really quickly, like in a way that a lot of people would, would hate me for. <laughs> so I found, and it was a big fan, it was big fancy New York based agent. And I really thought I had made it. Mm. So we started to shop that novel around New York. We sent it to a ton of different publishers and it got rejected everywhere. Mm. And at that point I was, I was, I was out of money. Basically, I just, I quit my job and gone to get a master's degree and I really needed to focus in on my career. So I got a job at publishing house at, in, in academic publishing and I actually stopped. I was very discouraging. So I just stopped writing for a number of years. And then a couple things happened that kind of got me back on the horse, I guess. One was I read a book by an author named Kate Atkinson called Case Histories. Uh, she's an author who I really like a lot. And um, she wrote what was basically what I was trying to do, which was a, a very character-based mystery novel. She writes this series called the Jackson Brody series, and Case Histories is the first in that series. I read that book and I thought, well... She just did what I was trying to do with my first novel. So maybe I can actually do this. Then I got a new job. I'd been working at um, one publishing house and I moved to another publishing house. And I managed to negotiate a month off in between my two jobs. Nice. And so I always had heard of this thing called NaNoWriMo, which is a national novel writing month. Oh, yeah. And it happens every year. It happens in November. The month that I had off was not the month of November, but I decided to apply some of the principles of NaNoWriMo to, to myself. And so, you know, I, you don't get a month off very often in your life. So I thought, you know, I, I thought I'm just going to sit down and I'm going to write every day and I'm going to dedicate myself to writing, whether it's terrible writing that comes out or good writing that comes out. So I did that. So the month went by and I finished, I had maybe... 40 to 50,000 words by the end of the month. And they were terrible, but I at least had those words written. So then I proceeded to, I started my new job and I was still taking this. I was not taking this seriously at all. I was just treating this as a hobby. I would do it on the weekend sometimes. You know, sometimes I'd get up in early in the morning and I'd, I'd work on the, the novel. This is a different story completely from the one that your literary agent uh, tried shopping. 
Oh yeah, that book. That book was just sitting on a, a hard drive somewhere. So this is a brand new book. Okay. And the the book that I wrote during that month was about a character named Sam Blaine, and he was he's sort of like a, a antihero. And as I was trying to, so then I spent the next three years revising that manuscript. <laughs> and one of the things that I did did is that I decided I didn't want to write an anti-hero story. I actually wanted a more traditional protagonist. So the third thing that sort of got me to the finish line was that I I looked around for a, a new character to inject into the manuscript that I had spent the month writing. And it's funny, people oftentimes ask where I came up with my my main character is this woman named Hester Thursby. Mm-hmm. And people will often ask, why do I write from a woman's point of view? And I hate to tell you, the answer is when I wrote the first manuscript, it was about two guys. It, it was about Sam and his friend Gabe. And when I decided I wanted to add a protagonist, I was like, I don't want the book to be about three guys. So I'll just make the investigator be a woman. That was my entire decision making process. And now I've written three books with her as the main character. Mm-hmm. So once I came up with her, that was when the novel really started to take off. I had to answer some questions about her and who she is. And I think think that's what we're going to talk a little bit about this um, during this time. Yeah. Um, But then it took me maybe another two years to finish that book. And I got an agent. The agent, it took a while to publish it once I found the agent. But I, I was resilient this time in a way that I wasn't the first time. And the funny thing is, this is what I always tell uh, my students, I, I teach at Emerson College now, oh, too. Oh, okay. I always tell my students this. It's like, really look at the writing that you're doing and be critical about it. Because I went back when I had to write my second book in my series. I did it while I was still working full time. I, I had a very demanding job and I needed it to be easier than the first book had been. <laughs> and so I went and found, I dusted off, I found that old manuscript, the one that didn't sell mm-hmm. in New York. And um, I read it to see if I could, I could spin it and to a new novel. And you know what? It was terrible. So I'm oh, really, okay. really glad that it never sold because I'm delighted that it is not out there in the world haunting me. Well, that's interesting that you said that because I had a book that was kicking around in my head for close to 20 years. I had the beginning and the ending, but I didn't have the middle. And then one day the middle came to me and I started gushing you know, to my son who was with me at the time about this idea that I had about writing a book. Well, I had never written anything before. So uh, he thought it was kind of interesting that I would try to write a fiction novel, given that I never did. So what I did was I went and got a book called How to Write Fiction for Dummies. Mm-hmm. And it was by Randy Ingermanson and a fellow by the name of Peter Economy. And it's a dummies book. And But for me, being a dummy, it, were, it was perfect. <laughs> and it gave me the structure that I needed in order to try to one foot after the other. I went through all the exercises. I did everything. And to this day, I still go over my highlights every single time I start a new novel from that book. So it just gets me into the right frame of mind from which then I start my, well, my uh, storyline, my synopsis, my three-act structure, and then finally my outline. I'm an outliner. So that, it, yep. that makes sense for me to do it that way. However, now where I was going with this is that I look at my first book, and I'm looking over at it now. It's on my uh, bragging shelf. And I wrote that, oh, gosh, uh, 2010, 2011, and it came out 2012. Yeah, I just pick it up and thumb through it, and I still get goosebumps here and there. Uh-huh. And maybe it, it's not uh, going to, uh, you know, uh, chase Hemingway off the shelves. But, you know, for me, 
it was my first effort. And I felt that going from never writing a thing to that was like this gigantic leap. And everything else, Edwin, has been kind of incremental since then. So, you know, I kind of, mm-hmm. I kind of look at that first one as like, well, I never wrote before. And through this process, I got 70,000, 75,000 words out there and ended with the end. Mm-hmm. I just feel like it represents my best effort then. And I look at the other books I've written and everything has been my best effort. And why? Because from each book going forward, it becomes the best effort, the best effort, the best effort, or it should be, you know, and, and if it's not, uh, it's not sitting there on my shelf <laughs> because, yeah. well, I didn't do my best effort, but I want to hear what you have to say in response. I would, I, I, I think you said that so well, there is a very special relate. I would never say that my first manuscript was actually done. I think that was part of the problem. Okay. The one that didn't sell. I think part of the reason it didn't, sell is because it wasn't done i see um and i didn't have the i at the time i didn't have the wherewithal to finish it okay um but i will say if my first my first published novel is called little comfort and there is a very special relationship with your first novel i think all authors feel this way Mm -hmm. you spend a lot of time with that first novel you learn what you're doing no one is waiting for your first novel which at the time is very frustrating but in retrospect there's a there's like a there's a joy about that there's a joy in just being able to create for the sake of creating so yes i my first novel my first published novel i have a very very special relationship with and to your point volleying like a tennis volley i'm gonna hit a volley back to you um i I say that there's a slight difference here between our paths because i went indie right from the get-go whereas you went traditional And with that first manuscript, that was your first draft. And you didn't have a chance to have that go through a developmental editor or a structural editor or a copy editor or a proofreader. That was a submission that you were going to make to a publishing house for the purpose of having those heavyweight people give you guidance and help you with your revisions and the revision process. Whereas mine, I, as an indie author, I paid to have somebody give me a very detailed uh, structural analysis, developmental edit, and then a very detailed copy edit and two proofreads. So for me, I got those extra uh, people to help me over those hurdles. Do you follow what I'm saying? Whereas mm-hmm. you saw that your book only got so far because it didn't make it to the the, fi- the editorial steps. Is that a fair thing to say in in, in comparison? Uh, sort of. I mean, I would just, of, of my first novel, the one that didn't sell, mm-hmm. I would actually say that it was not done. And okay. I, and it wasn't done on the author's uh, end. Not a, like no no. Um, I still needed to work on it before I went through a structural edit. Oh, okay. Or any kind of edit. Okay. That was what I learned in looking at it in in retrospect. Okay. Looking at it all those years. All right. Later. Well, thank you for teasing that out with me and and giving me a more detailed response because I didn't understand that at first that maybe. It, it just lacked the editor, but you're saying that it still needed to be polished up some more. That was still a lump of coal that you needed to work on yourself and your writing skills before it could be editor worthy. So now tell me about Little Comfort and, and Hester. That's uh, kind of what we're here about and then how she's gone uh, from that first book to uh, where she's at now. Sure. So my first book is called Little Comfort. Right. It, it introduces us to a very flawed protagonist in uh, Hester Thursby, who is 
she's in that book, she's 36 years old. She works at Harvard as a librarian, but on the side, she finds missing people. So she's, she's hired by people to find their missing friends or their missing uh, loved ones. In this novel, she's uh, hired by, gosh, it's so funny. I wrote this book a while ago, so I have to remember all the names. But she's hired by a woman named Lila Blaine to find Lila's missing brother, Sam Blaine. Okay. And one of the things I do with all the Hester Thursby novels is they're told, they're always told from four points of view. Actually, that first one is told from five points of view, but in general, they're told from four points of view. Okay. And so Hester will take about 40% of the point of view pages, Mm -hmm. and then I split the remaining 60% of the pages between three other characters. So in that one, we delve into the antagonist, who's this guy named Sam Blaine, and his sidekick, who's this other guy named Gabe DiPercio. And we also spend some time with a police investigator whose name is Angela White. And so Hester lives in a, she lives in this house. She lives in Somerville. She lives with her longtime partner, who is a guy named Morgan. He's a veterinarian. And they're raising Morgan's niece, Kate, who's four years old in that first book. And Hester, she's 36 years old. She's been single her entire life. She does not have kids and she doesn't have kids by choice. And so she's actually not so thrilled to have this kid tagging along all the time. So a lot of that first book is both her sort of coming to terms with the situation that she's in in her personal life. Well, she also subjects the poor child. to She subjects the child to some danger along the way. (laughs) Uh, The uh, reluctant sidekick. Yes. Exactly. Yeah. Oh, man. You know, yelling at her from the car seat. I'm sorry. Yeah, Yeah, I get that. That's a neat visual. So let me ask you, did you use Harvard in the script as that she was like a Harvard librarian? She is is a Harvard librarian. In that first book, she's actually on leave. She's on leave because Kate has come to uh, stay with her. And it's interesting. When I first wrote, again, like you spend so much time with your first novel, with your first manuscript. And so I wrote a ton of scenes with her at work over the many years that I was working on that, that draft, but I wound up cutting them because I wanted her to feel, I wanted the character to be very, very isolated in that novel. I wanted her to feel very alone. Um, and she couldn't go to work, especially as a librarian where you're, you know, you're working with students all day, right. you're working with faculty all day. You can't feel isolated, like completely isolated if you're going to work every day. So I wound up, it was funny. I just wound up cutting all of the scenes of her, uh, of her at work like it really strengthened the novel okay. for me. It strengthened the novel and where I wanted her to be as a character in that novel. Wow. She goes to work in the, in the subsequent novels though. Okay. Well, no, the reason I asked about Harvard was that I'm a little reticent about using real names of colleges. Like I, I made up a, a fictitious college for one of my books only because, well, a lot of the uh, character activity was central to that. I didn't want to get a letter from the legal counsel of that Ivy League institution asking me to uh, take my books down. You know, I didn't want that to happen. So, but you didn't feel any pushback, thought about not using the name Harvard as part of it? No. And, you know, if if I had something terrible happen on a campus, I'd probably, if I decided to write a Hester Thursby novel where something terrible happened in the the actual library, Mm -hmm. 
I would probably follow your lead there and have her be like visiting another library at a fictional school. I mean, like just as a rule of thumb, if good things happen, I don't mind it being a real life place. If terrible things happen, I make it up. Yeah, I agree. Thanks. Thanks for that clarification. And it makes sense based upon where you're at. I didn't know the whole story. So I didn't know if Colonel Mustard would be a collaborator with the candlestick in, you know, the, in the uh, library where she worked. So I didn't know. Uh, the whole story there, but you were able to get this, the new agent, and you were able to get a shop to a, uh, a publishing house. How did that feel? Oh, it was awesome. I mean, it was awesome. I mean, again, it took a while for it to sell. It took, I had to do a full rewrite, yada, yada, yada. Mm-hmm. And it was a long, discouraging process. And then all of a sudden it was this wonderful process, <laughs> you know, and then we signed the contract, which was great. And then it took a while for the book to come out. You sign, that's the, when you sign a, with a traditional publisher, a, a, a traditional publisher already has a catalog, right? Mm-hmm. So they have a catalog of things that they've already planned out. And so like your book's already done and you're like, why can't it come out tomorrow? Right. But um, but the publisher already has their publishing plan uh, set out. So they need to find a space in there where it makes sense business-wise mm-hmm. for the book to come out. Sure. And so I signed the contract and I don't think the book came out for another two years. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, it was just it was just more waiting, but that gave me, that gave me actually a good amount of time to work on the second book in the series. So that one could come out just a year later from the first one. And the name of it? The second one is called the missing ones. Okay. And so she does find missing people. So how did, how did she grow and change? Was she growing into a more fuller person or was she growing into a more fragmented soul? Well, I tried to look at like with any series this is not my rule of thumb. This is a rule that I wish I could give credit, but it's a it's an excellent rule. Let's put it that way. If you're writing a series, I think it's really good to look at the series in books of three mm-hmm. so that you have a story arc that kind of that you can map out over the three book series. And then if you have a, another set of books that come out, if you have another three, you can map out the next story arc. So for this story arc, I really wanted this set of novels to be about her Hester's relationship with Kate. So everyone ages in real time in these books. So mm. Kate is four and then five and then six in each of the novels and Hester's 36, 37, 38. Morgan's the same age as, as Hester. And so I wanted to map out their relationship in this household and show some growth and change there. Mm-hmm. So in the first book, Hester is, Hester is an adult. She knows that she has to take care of this kid. She's not, you know, she's not a monster or anything, but she's, you know, internally, she's frustrated by being placed in this situation. In the second book, because the events of the first book are so traumatic, honestly, Mm. she actually becomes almost like obsessive over Kate. So like she won't let Kate out of her sight. And and that sort of leads to some of the turmoil and some of the tension in that second novel. And then in the third book, that's where the relationship matures very much. Her relationship with Morgan matures. Her relationship with Kate becomes very, very much more loving than it than it had been than it had started out. Okay. Um, and so that was my goal all along. That was, it was to show them, them sort of becoming a, a little family together. Yeah. And, you know, and this goes along parallel to the A plot. This is your B plot and both are affected, right? Both uh, what's going on in the A plots affecting, you know, her relationships with uh, Morgan and Morgan's niece, right? Niece. Yep. yep. So I get that. And then of course their relationships impact on, the plot, you know, that's driving the story. Now, did they ask for you to do a series or were you always thinking this was going to be a series? I always knew this one was going to be a series. 
And I signed one book and then I signed the other two afterwards. Okay. But I had planned it out enough that I knew where that three story, that story arc was going to go mm-hmm. for the three books. Yeah. The first one could, I write all of them to be standalones, even though they're, they're serious. You can read any of the okay. books. You know, you can just jump in at any time. But I do find with series, you want to have entry points in the series. So like Louise Penny, who writes the Inspector Gamache novels, is really good at that. So every three books, if you read that whole series, which is like, I think she's on book 14 at this point. If you read that series, you'll see that every third book, so book four, book seven, book 10, it's almost like she introduces the stories again so that anyone can enter at that point and and kind of start appreciating the books again. That's a great device. And, you know, I think about that when I, I'm writing my series and I had a prequel novella puts my uh, protagonist back in her t- early 20 or mid twenties. And then fast forward to the rest of the series in her late forties. And I had to think about book to book to book, not only the character development, but also how a little bit of the previous stories had to be spelled out in the next stories because even though they could be called standalones, you know, she wasn't operating in a vacuum. And a lot mm-hmm. of her previous cases were ones that had to be talked about in the present because they, they influenced what she was doing. So did you run into any of that problem with Hester or was it pretty much, you know, you didn't hear about anything to do with Blaine and Gabe after uh, book one? or did, did you? I mean, I'll mention certain things. I try to be as brief about it as possible. Mm-hmm. I mean, the thing is there are readers who don't like to, come into series midway and if they do discover the series midway they get annoyed Mm -hmm. but you know you're creating this world and there are certain things that happen that you you do have to mention but i do try to keep everything from i keep the mentions from the series as brief as possible but i also try to signpost them if that makes any sense so that a new reader can say oh this I've just arrived at material from the last book. I can almost glaze over it. Mm. And then I can get back to the story. So there's an art to it, but there's definitely not a science to it. Let's put it that way. Trust me, I struggle with that. And having different editors for each of the books I wrote, I got a different answer from each one. So, And that, that gave me a little bit of help in that it was more of a personal choice, a reader choice, as a, or an editor choice, as opposed to hard and fast rules. So I just kind of figured that as my character grew, so did her investigative prowess. And to not mention the foundation on which this new learning or new investigative skill was based would leave the reader wondering, well, how does she have these skills or how does she know to do this? You know, so I was you know, pretty much in a police procedural conundrum of growing a skill set. And I had to... <laughs> I had to mention it, but not, like you said, not beat up on it. So so now, what book are you in with Hester? Book four, is it now? I finished book three. That comes out in paperback at the end of February, and, February 24th. And the, and that, the, the third book is called uh, Watch Her, W-A-T-C-H, Her. All right. That was the third book in the series. And then I just wrote another book uh, that comes out, the hardcover, and that one comes out on March 29th, and it's a standalone. It's called The Secrets We Share. But Hester, and so the whole thing, the Hester, like like a lot of these series, Hester sort of collects people. So like her world gets bigger. 
as the series goes along. And so one of the people who plays a major role in the whole series is a woman named Angela White. She's a detective. Yep, she's a detective with the Boston Police Department. And so Hester and Angela work together on cases a lot. And so in The Secrets We Share, Angela has a very big role, a very prominent role. And at one point in the the story, I don't want to give too much away, Hester makes a cameo. And that's related to her friendship with Angela. Okay. So with the title Watch Her, for the one that's coming out in paperback now, it gives me like a Gone Girl type of feel. Am I saying that the, the titling isn't really going in that genre, that, that mystery way or that psychological drama way? Or Gone Girl gave you and the girl on the train and the girl this, the girl that all gives you the idea yeah. of a psychological drama. With Watch Her, did you d- delve more into a psychological issue or what, did it still say, stay with your, the other tropes that you had been using previously? My books, I would, those, the Hester Thursby books, I would say, are all sort of noir. Who done it noir, I guess I would okay. say. And the Hester, with Watch Her, and there is, I mean, I will say, after you've written a few books, you start seeing, you start seeing little trends in your own writing. Yeah. And um, so uh, my books, like, always feature stalkers. Okay. <laughs> always feature people who, watching other people. Okay. And so one of the big things about Watch Her is there's this, constant refrain of the phrase watcher and it means different things in in different scenes and just like my just like little comfort and just like the missing ones watcher is told from four different points of view and so different characters are both watching out for different characters in that novel but they're also watching them to see what they're doing gotcha the t- if you read the book, the title really makes sense. No. <laughs> Let's just put it that way. Okay. <laughs> no, I, I hope I wasn't confusing you by saying that the title might have led a reader to think that the also bots should be more in the psychological drama of like the Gillian Flynn and Riley Scott. Um, yeah, I mean, I do like to put psychological drama in there, but in general, they're they're more like uh, noir. Okay, nice. That's cool. I didn't think of that at first, but it makes sense. So definitely. So doing anything else besides the series? Are you dabbling with short stories or playing with anything else at, at this time? Uh, I usually have one short story in me per year. Okay. I just wrote one for, this is an interest. I just wrote one for a guy named Josh Practer, P-R-A-C-H-T-E-R. He writes a ton of short stories for Ellery Queen oh, History okay. Magazine. Oh, okay, sure. And he is doing an anthology. He just put together an anthology, and it's all sto- it's all stories that are are um, inspired by songs by Paul Simon. So he asked a bunch of authors to participate, and we all had to first we all had to choose an album that Paul Simon recorded, and then we had to choose one song from everyone. Everyone had to choose one song from the album that they chose. So there, everyone had to have a different song. And so I wound up choosing the song. I actually didn't even know the song uh, because my original song that I wanted to use had already been taken, Mm -hmm. but I chose a song called patterns, P A T T E R N S. And um, it was such an interesting song. It's about someone who, is stuck in in certain patterns in their life. And as much as they try to escape those patterns, they realize that they have to follow them for their entire life. So I wrote a I wrote a story inspired by that song. And uh, it turned out to be super creepy and I really loved it. Great. 
And the, uh, let's see, I'm just looking up the name. The name of the anthology, I think it comes out at the end of the year. It's going to be called Paranoia Blues. Paranoia Blues. And the editor is, again, you said his name is? His name is Josh Pachter, P-A-C-H-T-E-R. I think I misspelled it the first time. A little slower for me as I write. So P-A-C-H-T-E-R. Okay. That's great. And then last year I wrote a, I wrote this Every year, there's a big conference for the mystery writing community called um, BoucherCon. Of course. And as part of BoucherCon, there's a anthology. Um, and last year, the anthology was edited by the wonderful Hank Philby Ryan, who is a who's a mystery author who lives here in the Boston area. And um, the so BoucherCon was canceled in 2020 yep. because of COVID-19. Why else? And um, so we're all hoping to go to New Orleans in August of this last year to go to BoucherCon for 2022. Mm -hmm. And so the um, anthology was called This Time, what was it called? It was called This Time for Sure. And of course, that turned out to be an ironic title because if you might remember, there was also a gigantic hurricane in New Orleans as well as COVID-19. So BoucherCon was canceled, but I wrote a story for that anthology it was called Outside. And I loved writing that story because I challenged myself to write a story that was under a thousand words. A thousand words is about two and a half pages. Yeah, um, and wow. so it was really fun to write something that was that tight. Mm. You know, I often think of the, uh, the saying attributed to Mark Twain that I would have written you a shorter letter, but I didn't have time. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. No, that's cool. I mean, I had gone to BoucherCon in Dallas and had every intention of wanting to go to BoucherCon. And that was 20, 2019. So 2020, they canceled it completely, or they, they did it online, virtual. And then we were going to try to do 2021, like you said, in New Orleans. And at the last minute, they had to cancel because of uh, the COVID-D variant was just rocking New Orleans at the time. And you know, people, they made a gutsy decision. Now, next year, BoucherCon, the Mystery Writers of America, is going to be in Minneapolis. So I'm looking forward. I've already done my plane tickets and my my registration and my hotel room already. Nice. Yeah, I I was acting with confidence that maybe all these variants will be over by 18 months from now. Not 18 months. I guess at this point it'll be seven or eight months from now. Yeah. So, yeah, definitely. So what's next for you, Edwin? So that book, so my next book, The Secrets We Share, comes out at the end of March. And I'm working on a book right now that I'm currently calling Bad Behavior. It's sort of, I'm still sort of at the beginning of it, but I'm really enjoying it. And the interesting, this one has no, Hester Thursby is is nowhere to be seen in this one, which is an interesting experience. But this one I'm telling in installments. So it has six point of view characters and each character tells one-sixth of the book. So the first sixth is told by one character, then the next sixth is told by the next character. And so the story is sort of recursive, as in we go over the same material Mm -hmm. a few different times. It's kind of like that show. If you've ever seen that show, The Affair, the way they'll tell the story from two different points of view. Oh, yeah. And so it's kind of fun just to see how the puzzle pieces fall together as I'm telling that story. So it's still kind of early. Who knows if the title will change? Uh, but it is a really interesting way to tell a story, and I'm, I'm having a lot of fun exploring it. That's great. You know, and, and you're flexing your muscles. You're doing something different like you did with the thousand-word short story outside, like you did with uh, the song Patterns. Yeah, maybe the, the money is in Thursby, but 
you know, the, the desire to be a writer and to think of different thoughts and not just uh, run the risk of becoming formulaic. You're stretching your wings. You're doing other stuff. And from that creativity will come other ideas, hopefully. So yep. definitely. So how can people get in touch with you, Edwin? You can find me at my website, which is edwin-hill.com. Okay. If you put my name into Google, I come up pretty soon. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I'm on the all the social media. You can find me at Edwin Hill Author on – no, I don't do – what's the video one? I don't. I, I haven't gone there yet. TikTok. But, um, TikTok, yes. But otherwise, uh, you know, I'm around. All right. So I want to thank you very much for coming on the show today. It was wonderful. I really appreciate the time you spent with me. Loved hearing about Hester. Loved hearing about your writing journey. Best of luck going forward with, you know, all your standalone And I just wish you the best. And uh, maybe uh, I'll see you, if I don't see you in Minneapolis, I'll see you at the next Crime Bake in uh, Massachusetts. Well, I I am definitely going to Pachacon if it happens. So I hope to see you there. All right. Thank you so much, Edwin. Thank you. Thank you for listening. I hope that I've earned your interest and your time. If you have any questions, please leave them on the website, www.johnhoda.com. It's J-O-H-N-H-O-D-A.com. Our guest next week is Lori Robbins. Brooklyn-born Lori, debut novel, Lesson Plan for Murder. A master class mystery won the Silver Falchion Award for Best Cozy Mystery and was a finalist in the Reader's Choice and Indie Book Awards. Murder in the First Position is her first in the new On Point Mystery Series, published by Level Best Books. Her next novel, Murder in the Second Position, came out in November of 2021. Robbins also is working on a second masterclass mystery, Linked to Murder. She's the vice president of the New York chapter of Sisters in Crime and is a member of both Mystery Writers of America and International Thriller Writers. Robbins began dancing at the age of 16 and launched her professional career three years later. She studied modern dance at the Martha Graham School and ballet at the New York Conservatory of Dance. Robbins performed with a number of regional, modern, and ballet companies, including Ballet Hispanico, the Des Moines Ballet, and the St. Louis Concert Ballet. After 10 very lean years as a dancer, she attended Hunter College, graduating summa cum laude with a major in British literature and a minor in classics. The mother of six, Robbins has vast experience homicidal tendencies of everyday life. This episode was brought to you by my own FBI agent, Marsha O'Shea, six-book series, and my upcoming Gwendolyn Strong Small Town Cozy Mystery Series. To learn more, go to www.johnhoda.com, that's J-O-H-N-H-O-D-A.com, and join my email list. Liberty City Nights, My Marsha O'Shea prequel novella is available to my subscribers there for free.